one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 9, The Dark Mark Don't tell your mother you've been gambling, Mr. Weasley implored Fred and George as they all made their way slowly down the purple carpeted stairs. Don't worry, Dad, said Fred gleefully. We've got big plans for this money. We don't want it confiscated. Mr. Weasley looked for a moment as though he was going to ask what these big plans were, but seemed to decide upon reflection that he didn't want to know. I'm Matt Potts. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Vanessa. Yeah. It, summer is over and I'm already ready for summer. <laughs> Give me some summer plans. <laughs> yeah, Matt, we have our summer camp next summer and we're planning it and it's just going to be so much fun. It's just going to be so much fun. And people can so find fun. out about it by going to notsorryworks.com. And then, of course, you can always join us on our Patreon at patreon.com slash Harry Potter Sacred Text. I think this is also a good moment for me to just remind people about how much great merch we have, which you can learn about at harrypottersacredtext.com. Our patron saint pins are amazing. Cho Chang, patron saint of criers. One of my favorite things about being part of Not Sorry Productions is I get like a sneak peek and upcoming merch. Uh-huh. Listeners, <laughs> I implore you, keep your eye on the merch store because new items are always arriving. Vanessa, this week you were telling us a story about humility. I can't wait to hear it. So, Matt, as you know, we got this grant from the Greater Good Science Center to think about intellectual humility for the year. And this is something that we're doing across our programming. And we've been partnered with this amazing professor, Professor Daryl Van Tongren. And he's at Hope College on Lake Michigan. 
And he and I have been talking about intellectual humility and his research is around the psychology of it. And one of the things that he talks about is right-sizedness as a form of humility, realizing when something isn't about you and then realizing when something actually is about you and you need to step into your authority, even if you don't feel ready for it. And so the story that I have is about a moment in my life. It's one of the biggest moments in my life that I can remember where I did something and I didn't understand what I was doing or why I was doing it. I went to college to become a high school English teacher. That is what I thought I was going to do with my career. And I moved to New York City and I was teaching and then I was working at an education nonprofit and I was sort of pretty happy in New York. I liked my friends and I I was doing what I said I was going to do and what I always thought I was going to do. And I was feeling increasingly anxious about living in New York because my father lived 3,000 miles away from me in Los Angeles, and he was about to turn 56, which is the age that his father passed away. I never met my grandpa. He died before I was born. But my dad and he were very close, and there's sort of this like mythology around him and their closeness. And actually, my grandfather didn't die until my father came to visit and died in my father's arms, right? There's just this profound closeness between the two of them. And I knew that this was superstitious of me, that I was worried that my father couldn't possibly outlive his father, but I couldn't quite get over it. And so I was on a walk with my friend, Mike, and I said to him, I just feel this like overwhelming need to move home to Los Angeles sort of until my dad turns 57. I just, I'm scared. I'm scared he's going to die and that I am going to regret not being there. I can't explain it, but I feel like I have to move home at the end of the school year. And my friend Mike, very kindly and like with concern for my career, was like, I really don't think you have to move home because your dad is the same age that his father was when he died. Like, your dad is healthy. You've got a good thing going here. I think you should stay. And I was just like, nope, I definitely think I need to go. And this definitely took me off of my path. I wasn't credentialed in California, so I taught at a private school that year. And I severed a lot of the relationships that I had inertia around New York. But it was just something that I felt like I absolutely had to do. I I was scared my dad was going to die and I wanted to spend the last year of his life with him. So my dad turned 57 in April (laughs) and I said to him on the night of his birthday, I was like, you know, dad, I I moved home because I was afraid you were going to die this year, that you wouldn't outlive your dad. And he was like, I know you did. And I was scared that I wasn't going to survive this year too. And that was all we said about it. But looking back and thinking about right-sizedness as a form of humility, I think I always thought that I moved home out of like a weird sense of superstition. But looking back, I really do think I moved home out of humility. I felt like I didn't understand the way that the universe worked. And on some level, my father, who'd been sick for most of my life, could have some sort of like soulful connection to his father where he couldn't outlive him. And also that I just wasn't above taking a break in my quote unquote career 
at 23 or 24 years old to listen to that voice. And as a very rational person, or someone who likes to think of myself as a rational person, obviously, who knows, this was very outside of my normal way of being. And yet I don't regret it. I prefer this reframing of it as humility rather than some sort of romantic stupidity. Yeah, I prefer that reading too. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, I think it's a great story and I think it actually really captures all that that definition of right-sizedness can capture, right? Because there's a cynical or romantic, stupid interpretation of your story, which would say, like, it wasn't right-sized because it would not be right-sized to believe that the physical laws of the universe would bend to the unique trauma of your one family, right? But you didn't believe that. Like, you knew that was not true. What was right-sized about it was that, like, oh, I'm scared. I think you had an intuition that your dad was scared, too. And the right response to that is to address it, right? Like you were not going to value your your career over the two of you having that time together, even if the time that you had together was not to spend the last year of his life with him, but to spend a particularly anxious or difficult year of his life with him. I think that's what you knew you had, and that's what you knew he had, at least at some level. And like the right sizeness of it was not believing the universe would bend to to your own family history, but that like you have a family history that all of you, whether you like it or not, bend to, and that you were going to respond to it. I think it's a great story, and it really kind of lays out what's what's at stake in using this definition. Because I think what I hear you also implying in some of your story, I'm sure we'll get into this in the theme episode, is that humility is one of these virtues where it can easily become a vice, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things we want to think about is, like, how do we keep humility right-sized so it doesn't become a tool of either self-abuse or the abuse of others. And I think that your story really like lays out this idea of like sizing it rightly, making sure it's that you're placing yourself and your priorities within the right framework. Yeah. I, I also <laughs> like, this is going to make me sound really silly, but I also was like, I don't understand the biology of trauma, right? Like my dad had been severely sick since his early 40s. And I I know the stories about like people who hang on until, right? Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I don't know. Maybe he's hung on until now and he psychologically won't want to outlive his father, right? Like it also just felt like a moment where I was like giving into the mystery of I don't know how the body works and yeah. Yeah. But he he's still alive, everyone, and that was 15 years ago. Well, Matt, something that I know that you are annoyingly humble about, speaking about not right-sized <laughs> humility, is the 30-second <laughs> recap. So why don't you model for people bad humility? I'm the best. I'm going to crush it. <laughs> no one has ever done a 30-second recap better than I'm about to do a 30-second recap today. On your mark. Get set. Go. So Fred and George have been gambling, and Arthur's like, please don't tell anyone. And they're walking away, and it was a great match, and Harry dreams, and he has this very prideful dream about him being the big hero. And then, oh my gosh, everything happens, and people are running, and they're screaming, and the Robertses are floating in the air, and it's awful. And the uh, Harry, Ron, and Hermione run off, and then there's um, uh, they trip over something, and then there's a the dark mark in the air, and then, they, and then everyone shows up, and they almost get stunned, and Winky comes out, and they accuse Winky, and they accuse Harry, and, they, and then they meet up with everyone else again, and they're the... Death Eaters are there. Well done. You covered a lot. What I tell you, best ever. I have to say, like, I, I do feel like 
I feel like our listeners need to see my hand motions. I, I feel like they don't really, they, they don't understand my stress just from listening. I know this is an audio uh-huh. medium and we're trying to convey a lot through audio, so I don't want to discredit, but the hand motions are ridiculous. Like when I get nervous, they come up higher and wave around my face. I, you become Muppety. I become Muppety, don't I? I do become Muppety. Yeah, you're like, But yeah. like, not just Muppety, but like the way Muppet hands move, like how one's connected to a stick and moves around and the other one's very, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. Vanessa, are you ready? Yes. Count me in. Three, two, one, go. So there's a riot happening. And so Mr. Weasley's like, children, go away. And all the kids run off. Bill and other older Weasleys are like, we'll help. And But Harry, Ron, and Hermione, blah, 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 go. And Harry loses his wand. And the Vilas are being, like, kind of attacked by a bunch of bewitched um, wizard guys. And then there's confusion around who's done the dark mark. And Barty Crouch is like, oh, no, it was my house self. I'll deal with her. And Amos Diggory is like, fine. That was excellent. This, see, this there, there are times when I do truly feel like a team. Yep, I agree. Right, when, Today was a team day. When we have like a very long chapter, and today's is a very long chapter. I think we engaged this chapter in our 30-second recaps with some humility. Neither of us really tried to get everything. I think it was better that I went first because I usually go in a panic and just say whatever comes <laughs> to mind first. And then you, with composure, fill in many of the significant gaps. Team. Go team. Go team. Great job, us. We're the best. So, Vanessa, I have a, a scene from early in this chapter that I want to ask you about because it it's starting to get at the idea of, like, when humility becomes problematic. Honestly, when I think about humility, I usually think about it problematically. I know humility is supposed to be a virtue, especially within the Christian tradition. But the reason why I think about it as problematic is because it's been used in such problematic ways in the Christian tradition to, like, tell people who are suffering or who are who don't have power they're like oh it's good and it's a virtue to just embrace your your lowness or your hum- or your humbleness or your powerlessness isn't that good for you and by the way i get to keep all my power <laughs> and, and you know so like the right sizeness is a great definition for me how we apply this idea of right sizing becomes i think tricky right so like early in this chapter you know they've just gone to the Quidditch world cup they've seen this amazing match all this new stuff, like all the cheering, the the number of people, the announcing, the leprechauns and the villas. And Harry's a 14-year-old boy, and he falls asleep having done this. And of course, has a dream about him being the star seeker of the World Quidditch Cup winning Quidditch team and 100,000 people cheering for him and Ludo Bagman announcing his name. Love it. But like, it just makes me love Harry that he's 14 and like, this is a right-sized fantasy for a 14 year old right it's also prideful like it's also not right sized in the sense that like you know it's probably not going to happen like it's right sized in the sense that it's appropriate for his age and like mental development and and all those things and it makes me just see him as a kid which is great and who hasn't had those kinds of thoughts right but in the story he is having this dream and then everything falls apart that's when people start screaming, like all the badness happens. And I don't, I'm not saying that, that the text or that Rowling or whatever is trying to draw a direct connection between this kind of, one could say, prideful moment and everything that bad that happens. But it is true that one of the things that is continually wrestled with throughout the scope of the series is Harry as the one figure who can save us all, right? And what's gradually torn apart 
is that idea and the idea that what he actually needs is a full community of people. And so by the end of the story, everyone's obsession about him becomes like this Dumbledore's army, this large group of people who are working together even after they believe he's died, right? There's something about like pridefulness or believing that Harry is the one that can do it all is a consistent obstacle in the series of novels. And there's something about, I don't know, maybe in my reading of it, of Harry starting to embrace this idea that he is the one, right? And it's going to be a tension coming forth in this novel when he's the extra, the fourth Triwizard, right? Like tournament champion. Like that that so immediately precedes this utter frightening, terrible moment at the Quidditch World Cup. I don't know. Like, is it saying he shouldn't be think- having these prideful thoughts? Is he saying that, I don't know. What What do you think? Yeah, I just think that it's Harry never gets nice things. Yeah. Like, I don't know if I would tie it to humility. There just seems this like Harry has one happy moment, has like one kid moment where he's like, I saw the Quidditch World Cup and maybe I can be in the Quidditch World Cup one day. And because he is who he is, he doesn't get to be a kid in that moment. You know, it's exactly because he's there and we are where we are in the history with Voldemort that Death Eaters feel like they can do this again. So yeah, I don't know if I would make it about humility so much as like Harry's identity is just always going to be tied to trauma. And so it's always going to catch up to him. Yeah, that's right. I think also his identity is always going to be tied to how his trauma has marked him as the singular wizard, the boy who lived, which makes it almost impossible for him to navigate the usual challenges of pridefulness versus humility that all of us kind of face, right? Because everyone thinks he's the one, right? Later on in this book, right, he is going to be the one. Like, how did you get your name in there, Harry? Like, you're so prideful. You're so, you lack so much humility that you're going to put your own name in. It's the same thing you're saying, right? Which is that he doesn't actually get to be just a kid who dreams about it, an underage kid who dreams about it, like every other you know, person his year at Hogwarts dreaming about being the one who gets to be the champion. He is actually made one of the champions. So then it has to like, how can he inhabit that either with humility? Like, how do you right size the Messiah? <laughs> right? Like, he actually does not get to deal with it right. the way a normal 14 would, would deal with it because everyone's already looking to him either with resentment or with too much dependence. And he's just like a 14-year-old kid trying to figure it out. He doesn't get to have these like absolutely like appropriate fantasies after watching this for the exciting world cup right in any moment he sort of forgets that he's the one right like the world is going to remind him because that isn't a right size moment for him except moments where he is something else right when he's alone with ron and hermione that is not his primary identity we'll see this later in this book also it impacts their dynamic. Ron resents it and, you know, it's problematic, but it's actually not humble to forget. I mean, this is something we know better and better, right? Like to forget your privilege or to forget your trauma. It, you know, there are moments where we want to forget it, but part of our responsibility is to hold on to those identities, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And then to cherish the places where we get to shed some of those identities, but I think humility is difficult in that way. There are times where, you know, you don't want to be the boss. You don't want to be the professor. You don't want to be the, you know, the parent. (laughs) Like, I just want to be a person right now. But it's actually the humble thing to do to be like, do you know what? But I am the parent. I, I still have to do whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really useful, too, especially your example about how 
most of the time, not all the time, because they're humans, right? But most of the time, it's when Harry's with these people he trusts the most, who know him the best, that his messianism can become right-sized, that he just gets to be Harry, right? Right. And, and he's a great kid, and he does yeah. superheroic things, right? And he can own those things with the two of them like he can't with anybody else. Even if sometimes it's hard, right? They can manage together, which makes me think that, like, part of being right-sized is— being in relationship, mm-hmm. in proper, life-giving, supportive relationship. And it makes me think of, like, your story, too. Like, I mean, the way you told your story, I don't know if it's how you experienced it, but it was confirmed that it was right-sized when your dad responded, I was scared of that, too. Then you're like, oh, this was the right thing. Yeah. It doesn't actually matter the reasons. This was the right thing. And that is, like, it's something about that relationship that says, oh, this is why it fits. This is why this action or this set of actions or this set of decisions were, were appropriate. And, and that makes me think... Well, maybe this is an answer to where humility goes wrong when it becomes isolating, right? Mm-hmm. When either people use it to isolate you as disempowered, or you use it to isolate yourself as disempowered, or you perform it in order to hide your power, or all these kinds of things. Like those are all ways where you're actually breaking and and stretching or or troubling relationship. But when you're in an actual real good relationship <laughs> with another person, sound relationship with another person, then those relationships and those people kind of check you and help you be the right size, right? Yeah. I remember an interview. God, <laughs> this is taking me back. I must have been home because my parents watch 60 Minutes every week. So there's a 60 Minutes interview with Steven Spielberg where somebody was like, everybody says you're humble, even though you're this, you know, Academy Award winning director, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, how do you pull it off? And he said, I have six kids. You know, he was like, I come <laughs> home and like, they're, they don't care you know, or however many kids he has. He's like, they're not impressed with me. Yeah, right. I, you know, and my wife still makes me, you know, change the diapers and clean up the vomit. And, you know, like, and so I do think that it's in that community, you know, on the set, he's a director and at home, he's a dad. And both of those things are true. Yeah. I also think that we see the flip side of Harry's inability to be humble in the way that we typically picture humility at the end of this chapter where all evidence points to the fact that Harry conjured the dark mark. He gets caught yep. in the situation. It is his wand that conjured the dark mark. We know how selves can't do this kind of magic, wouldn't know how, wouldn't want to. And yet Mr. Weasley is able to be like, come on, Harry Potter would never. And right, like that is the inverse. He gets this privilege. He doesn't get to dream about being a Quidditch yeah. World Cup player without being reminded, oh, actually, you have this messianic job that you have to do. But he also won't be accused of conjuring the dark mark. Right. We are starting to see in that moment, like the sort of lack of intellectual humility, which is going to haunt the ministry's relationship to the rise of the Death Eaters, like for the next three and a half books, three, more than three and a half books, right? Like they think they already know what's possible and who could do what and who's capable of what. And so they're making presumptions that they don't even notice they're making, right? They're not asking deep enough questions about what's going on, where Bertha Jorkins might be, like all these other things that might give them clues to something else more troubling going on. And when, you know, evidence, like the grimmest sort of evidence is presented to them at the end of this book in the in the form of Amos Diggory's lifeless son. Like even that by the fifth book is not going to be enough evidence. So you see, even in this scene that you just described where they're 
just it's a pretty bad investigation, right? It's not very thorough. Yeah. How the problems are of their continuing struggle with what is coming is like we can see the seeds of it here. And it's related to a lack of a lack of curiosity, a lack of of humility, of like being able to acknowledge that the way they see the world, the assumptions upon which their understanding of the world rests, that those might be wrong. And, you know, another way of putting this is Voldemort and the Death Eaters are depending upon them not being intellectually humble. Yep. Because that is the opportunity they have to actually, because, like, I mean, just kind of empirically, Voldemort's really weak right now. Right. <laughs> right? Like, he's gonna, he has to depend upon them making a lot of assumptions and bad assumptions because of the way they think the world must be in order for him to build the power that he wants to build. Yeah, you also see that in this moment with Amos Diggory. So Winky has been stupefied because the whole ministry tried to stupefy the three children, but Harry was smart enough to tell them to duck because the ministry folks who were at the Quidditch World Cup assume that it was whoever conjured the dark mark. And Winky gets accidentally stupefied. And so she's passed out and she's near Harry's wand. And Mr. Crouch is like, oh my God, that's my house elf. And so Amos Diggory is like, she obviously is the one who did it. So is it okay if I wake her up so that we can ask her? So Barty Crouch doesn't say anything when Amos Diggory asks him this. And what the text tells us is that Mr. Diggory took his silence as assent. And I mean, what that is, is non-consensual. And like, that is a lack of humility. That is a lack of right-sizedness, right? Or halfway through, Amos Diggory has realized, oh, I don't actually need Mr. Crouch's consent to do this. This is just like the right thing to do for the investigation and therefore realizing his right-sizedness. But I feel like then that should be articulated. But this is a moment of a real lack of humility, which is like, is it okay if I do this? And then you do it. Yeah, I think that's a really great point, Vanessa. And it's just another example of how the ministry, like, fumbles this at every step. I mean, there's just, like, a lack of humility on both sides, right? Because there's yeah. also this sentence where I think it's Ron who says this. It's mad to do this when the ministry is watching, right? That, like, it's like, can you believe that they are torturing these muggles because they are muggles? It's just in plain sight of the ministry. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's humility to be ashamed of your bigoted, you know, racism, but it's something and it is mad to do it when the ministry is watching. It's certainly brazen. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. not afraid. Well, I think it's also like that scene. Like, so what happens is at the beginning of the chapter, right after Harry wakes up, everyone's screaming and running and they see these masked folks. The children see these masked folks suspending some bodies in the air. And pretty soon they say that these are the Robertses. And not just Mr. Roberts, but we've always met, but the people we presume are the rest of his nuclear family or whatever, including some children, which is really, like, awful and, and terrible, right? And Ron makes the comment you made, which is like, that's, he says, that's just sick, right? And they run off. And, and then also, like, it's also just stupid to do it while the whole ministry is here and it generates the reaction that it does and there's all this chaos and so forth. But it also got me thinking about, you know, especially your definition of right-sizedness and everything else we've been talking about, how one of the other things that's really starting to emerge and develop in this book, but also in this chapter in particular, is this idea of, you know, wizarding supremacy, right? Like, we've heard it, heard a lot about it. We've been hearing about pure bloods and so forth for a couple of chapters, but we haven't seen until this book you know, with the murder of Frank Bryce in the first chapter and now with, like, the really cruel torture of these muggles in this chapter, like, now we're seeing, like, how hateful wizarding supremacy can be. And if we think about 
taking this definition of humility as right-sizedness, like believing that your class of people or your class of creature has outsized importance, like exists right. in the world and should have control over others, like is is wrong-sizedness. Like that's one definition of it. I mean, I think we have better and stronger definitions of it. But just to, to elevate your own kind of class or tribe above and against all others is a lack of the the kind of humility that, that you and Daryl from the Greater Good Science Center are calling us to, right? Right. It's something that, you know, I've been thinking a lot about with intellectual humility. It's like, but there are some things that either I don't want to be intellectually humble about or I want to find a way to say that it is humble. Like, I don't want to be like, who is doing this to the Robertses and why? Let's be curious, right? It's yeah. like your reaction needs to be right-sized for the situation, which is I don't really care how it's happening or why it's happening. We have to stop this from happening in the safest way possible and deal with the rest of that later, right? Like, I don't yeah. think that you need to be humble, at least not in an obvious way, about the Death Eaters. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. One other thing that I feel like we have to talk about in terms of humility is that Harry loses his wand. Yeah. And he realizes how powerless he is without his wand. And the reason that I feel like we have to talk about it is it's how I feel every time the electricity goes out or if I don't know where my phone is. If we think of wand as, you know, smartphone, 
I'm like, I don't know how to do anything anymore. I can't find where I need to go. I don't know what I have next on my calendar. And that is you being right-sized. I think we feel more powerful than we really are because we can find anywhere and be reminded of anything and look anything up. And actually, the moments where we lose our muggle equivalent of wands, I think, is a being humbled moment. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We can, like we know who we are, right? Yeah. I'm yeah. someone who doesn't know what meeting is next or exactly. when it is. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> I, I have no idea. That, and that is truly me. Vanessa, can I take you and our listeners to Etymology Corner for a minute? I love it when you take me there. Oh, good. I have my passport. I'm ready. When I saw the etymology of this word, like I wasn't really sure how it would work, but actually our conversation has led me to think about how we might think through the interesting etymology of this word. So the word humility is related to words like humble, and it comes from a Latin root of for earth, for earthliness, right? So humus, H-U-M-U-S, uh, was a word that referred to earthliness. And I didn't know what to do with this just because like... This comes from like an ancient cosmology where like the heavens up above, that's where the powerful things are and live, the gods or, you know, angels or whatever. And then the ground or below the ground, indeed below the ground, that's where the like the lowly, less valuable things live. And that's not a cosmology I that fits with my sense of things anymore, right? I would say it's a wrong-sized cosmology. But having our conversation, like now I'm I'm thinking, well, maybe it it is an etymology we can retrieve because like what I want to do is think about like being connected to the earth. Like we are here on the earth. We have, there are others around us. Like there's something about placing yourself, situating yourself where you are, not putting your head up in the clouds or imagining yourself to be someplace else, but being rooted or grounded to the world as it is. Like, I don't know, maybe humus and humility can still be tied together in a way that, that makes sense for us with this right size definition. Yeah, just connected to the earth rather than low, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Like instead of like lowly because you're at the earth, grounded. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. Which I think is what Hermione is doing in this moment with the house elves that we were talking about. It's not arrogant. It's saying these are creatures and they have rights, right? She's not yeah. saying I've actually done all of the research and she's not claiming an authority that she doesn't have. She's sharing this like earthly gut response that she has, which is I've just seen yeah. an injustice. And actually, I have evidence about it all day. He did this earlier to her, right? She was yeah. up in the top box, even though she was scared. And so it's actually this like close to the earth reaction, this grounded reaction. And again, I think this is the like gift of diversity. This is because Hermione didn't grow up in the wizarding world that she's able yeah. to see this so clearly that she hasn't, yeah. it hasn't been elevated to a social norm that she's just gotten comfortable with. She is seeing something very clear, yeah. which is that this is unjust. Yeah. And it also, I mean, to, to kind of refer this back to another example that, that we talked about a little bit in this conversation, like, one of the things that's remarkable about Harry is that he does have all these messianic expectations attached to him, but he's super grounded, like all the way through, even in this book, when everyone else kind of loses it because he's one of the champions. You know, he's a typical, like, 14-year-old, like he has the temptations and worries and concerns of a 14-year-old, but like he's super grounded, like <laughs> throughout this book and throughout the series, right? We've been talking about that in the first three books and it continues and will continue. 
on. And that makes me wonder, I mean, this is not to valorize or silver lining his upbringing with the Dursleys, because I don't want to do that. And I don't want to be mistaken for doing that. But I think there is something to be said for it. He also was raised outside the wizarding world. He doesn't have presumptions of either wizarding supremacy or his own supremacy as this messianic figure. And I think that does situate his relationship to all these things in a similar way. There is one moment of, I think, intellectual humility at the end of the chapter, which I think is worth talking about. I think everything you said before, Vanessa, was true about like, while the Robertses are in the air, like it doesn't matter who or why, just address the problem. But at the end, when the commotions die down, they are actually starting to ask each other what happened. Like Bill shows this really interesting moment of intellectual humility because every, like Ron is like, obviously they're Death Eaters. Why wouldn't they be Death Eaters? And Bill is like, actually, we don't know who they were because Death Eaters should be terrified. Like the only Death Eaters who are still around, the ones who aren't in Azkaban, are ones who true Death Eaters would want to murder, <laughs> right? Right. I mean, Bill is not necessarily right in this moment, but he's the only one that says, oh, you know what? This doesn't fit my assumptions, and so I'm not going to lean on my assumptions. I actually just have to become curious about this because I don't know what's going on. And I think if more people in the ministry were taking that general kind of posture of like, oh, this doesn't fit the way I think the world works, I might need to start over as unsettling and as scary that starting over might be, the ministry might end up in a better place. Yeah. And it's also remarkable because Bill, Charlie, and Percy have just been beaten up, right? Like in this scuffle, which is another not just humble thing to do, but like deeply brave thing to do to like see a riot going on and run toward it. And I love that Arthur is like, you three go fight the rest of you out of here to safety, right? There's just like a real clarity of right sizeness of his own children of like, you have to be safe and you need to step up. So to just have gotten back from being sort of beaten up in this way and already be like, I'm not going on the war path without the right information is really incredible. That's the moment where I, my blood pressure would be yeah. up and I'd be like, it yeah, was right. the Death Eaters. Yeah. And instead he's just staying so rooted. Yeah. Well, thanks, Matt, for a great theme conversation. Thank you, Vanessa. Today, we're going to do our four-step reading practice, Lectio Divina. Would you like to pick a sentence at random for us? I'd love to. What happened, said Hermione anxiously, stopping so abruptly that Harry walked into her. Ooh. Okay, so step one of Lectio is what is literally happening in the sentence. And so this is the middle of the chaos. Yeah, so so this is right after the chaos happens. Harry, they've just been awakened, right? Like this is minutes within having been stirred from sleep really abruptly. They've heard people screaming. They've seen people running around. They have seen the Robertses suspended in the air and they've run off. And then they've been separated from caretakers and guardians, right? Like Arthur has just said to them, we, and Arthur meant like Charlie, Bill, and Percy. And and Arthur, we're going to go help the ministry, right? So you three 14-year-olds go be on your own in the woods while this is happening, right? And so they're wandering around in in the dark and not really sure where they're going or where they ought to be going or what's going on behind them. They're just trying to kind of get away. Yep. Oh, and also, I mean, we don't learn this for another moment, but Ron has just yelled out in pain because he's tripped on a tree root. Yeah. So, so like, there's a lot of commotion. They, they can't even interpret, like, what's going on in their immediate vicinity. Yeah. These chaotic moments are just, like, 
the worst moments. Yeah. And yeah, Hermione's just trying to make sense of it immediately, which I find very yeah. relatable. Step two of Lectio Divina is what other stories does this remind us of? And so the sentence is, what happened, said Hermione anxiously, stopping so abruptly that Harry walked into her. It must be because of your pastoral ministerial presence, Matt, but I'm reminded of a Bible story. Okay, let's hear it. I'm reminded of the story of Lot's wife when God has decided to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Lot and his family have been spared, though, but they're not allowed to look back. And Lot's wife looks back and so she gets turned into a pillar of salt she gets like punished for looking back at the chaos and yeah this reminds me of that because hmm, you know hermione's in chaos and she's stopping to look back and she's not punished in the same way but this desire to to try to understand the chaos you know it's one of the things in the old testament that has frustrated me right that you need to obey God so much and so much to the letter of the law, that even looking back with compassion potentially at what is befalling your neighbors is going to get you punished is really troubling to me. And, yeah. you know, that's not what quite happens here, but I think it, it really reminds me of that, of just this chaos happening behind you, this concern for what you're leaving behind as you are getting to safety and therefore yep. stopping. Yep. What about you, Matt? Well, I'm thinking about these kids wandering around in the dark, and there's a series of books that I read with my kids. Gosh, I read the first one probably maybe five or six years ago now, but this is The Mysterious Benedict Society, which is a really great series of books that we really loved. And honestly, I read the first novel so many years ago, I can't remember if this is from the novel itself or in the, the TV version of the novels that came out, I think, last year. But one of the tests that the children have is they have to navigate their way through this house, which is kind of like a maze, and all the rooms look the same. And in my mind, and maybe this is because of the representation in the TV show, but it might be in the books too, it's very dark. It's hard to find their way through. And they're just kind of wandering around. They don't know where they're going or why. And yeah, and so maybe for obvious reasons, I see the similarities here. But there's also like, I think maybe the other similarity is like that the heroes of the Mysterious Benedict Society make it through the maze because maybe this is like a sense of groundedness or humility. They stop reacting to like what's frightening about the situation and just kind of think about the gifts they have and how they can respond to what's right in front of them. And three children with very different gifts make it through in very different ways, right? And there's something about like the moment after this line, after Harry runs into Hermione, she's just like, oh, what are we doing here? Like, and she takes out a wand and lights the path, right? Like there's, <laughs> she just like solves this problem. Because she's like, just does the thing that she has to make things a little bit better, which is kind of the, the humble thing, right? Like I, like in the Mysterious Benedict Society, the children save the world, but at every step, I don't have to save the world in this step. I just have to do the next best thing I can do, right? With the tools I have, which is kind of a grounded, kind of humble, right-sized thing, right? The next step doesn't have to save the world. It just has to get me to the step to come, right? Yeah. So maybe that's... Maybe that's why I see them together. I don't know. That's great. I had not heard of those books. I'll have to look into them. Oh, they're great. They're super fun. So, Matt, step three, we talk about what this reminds us of in our own lives. And the sentence one more time is, what happened, said Hermione anxiously, stopping so abruptly that Harry walked into her. 
I might be overreading this just from my interpretation in step two, but it's like, don't you feel kind of like we as a nation are wandering around in the dark a little bit after having seen some catastrophic things, <laughs> right? And stumbling and tripping over things and running into each other and kind of scared and kind of unsettled. I feel that way at a like a national or political scale. And and in a less like precarious way, just sort of I feel like my university and and my church like are in these periods of transition for good reasons, for right reasons. Like Harvard's trying to start to take some real ownership of its history. And I think that's important. But part of taking ownership of its history means trying to plot a different future, right? And so there is like, we know there's some stuff in our past that we have to reckon with, but we're not really sure what it means going forward. And so like this kind of wandering around in a potentially dangerous wood, but knowing that the only way forward is to face what you got, like that that feels relatable. And, and there's, so there's something really relatable in the moment that comes from the next line, not from the line we chose, but just like this next right thing, next best thing use the tool you have now and then when you could take your next step with your further information keep going yeah i don't know what about you vanessa yeah you know i went to elementary schools kind of in in the mountains in the las virginis mountains and like our electricity would go out kind of a lot and it what it like when you're little it wasn't fun it was a little scary so i just remember once in particular us like eating our lunches at our desks And like, it was just kind of quiet. The electricity went out because of a rainstorm. And so usually because it was Southern California, there wasn't a cafeteria. We would eat our lunch outside because it was raining. We were eating inside at our desks and then there wasn't electricity. And just, yeah, just like the vibe of it was like not super fun. It was sort of just a little bit scared. And the teacher was trying to be upbeat, you know, and we were fine. The electricity turned back on that day, you know, but just those moments where things are a little scary, a little bit of chaos is happening. And yeah, I'm thinking about all the moments in my life like that. We had a shelter in place once when I was proctoring and living on campus. And yeah, like that was really scary. The shooter wasn't near us and we were being kept up to date via text message. And, you know, we were fine. But I think part of what was scary was part of the shelter in place was everybody was supposed to stay in their own rooms. Hmm. And so we couldn't be together. And so that was scary. It was us all being in a building together, all of my students and I being in the same building and yet not being able to be together. Yeah. Yeah. So step four, Matt, is what does this make us feel called to? And the sentence one more time is what happened, said Hermione anxiously, stopping so abruptly that Harry walked into her. I mean, I, I'm, I didn't do this on purpose, but I feel like I set myself up for it with my last two interpretations. Yeah. It's just like the next right thing, right? Like I, these, the proper like humble posture to take would be to just admit like, boy, these are super complicated things and I'm not going to know how to address them or what it's going to mean to me or my job or to my institutions like in six months or a year or let alone like five or ten years what i need to do is like okay today what's the thing that i need to do to keep moving forward and keep keeping the people who need to be protected protected and and to respond to to the world around me so yeah yeah it makes me feel called to do what hermione does here of like what happened she pauses and i feel like Mm. i'm often called to pause yeah Right. Like she's taking a second. And I I feel like often, especially in moments of chaos, I'm just like, okay, we go, we keep going. And I think that that has its place, right? Like you get the Robertses down as safely and quickly as possible. And like, it doesn't matter what else is happening. But this is a great moment once they're like safe and in the woods to 
be like, wait, what's happening? Yeah, that's right. Sometimes the next right thing is taking a moment, right? Taking a pause. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's right. And that is what she does before she does anything here. Yeah, that's right. Well, thanks, Vanessa. This was a great, a great Lectio. It's fun to return to this practice again. Yeah, I love Lectio. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Now we'll listen to a voice memo from Callahan. And just a warning to you who are listening, Callahan does speak about death and loss in this voice memo. If you'd rather not hear this voice memo, please skip ahead about three minutes. Hi, Vanessa, Matt, and the Sacred Text team. My name is Callahan. I'm calling in from Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. And today I'd like to offer a blessing to Sirius, Ramus, and all other characters and people going through sudden loss. I've just finished listening to book three of the podcast, the loss of James for Sirius and Ramus and the way they internalize and manage their grief and how it still impacts them 12 or so years later really stuck with me this entire read-through. This January 2022, I lost my person, my best friend, my partner. It was sudden and completely unexpected In less than an hour, my entire world was turned on its head, and there was nothing I could do. I imagine in some way, this is how it must have been for Sirius and Ramus finding out about James and Lily. The questioning and self-doubt of what would have changed if I had gone with him, or what could have been different if I hadn't traded places. 
we will never have answers to those questions, and that hurts so deep. In a few books, Harry is going to experience this sudden loss with Sirius. I don't have an answer to grief. I don't think anyone does. It's a messy shipwreck that we cling to until we can rebuild our rafts. But I would just like to bless Sirius and Remus and anyone who is grieving at this time. We're all in the storm together. Callahan, thank you so much for sharing your loss with us and trusting us to hold it. I know I speak for everyone listening when I say that I'm truly sorry that you lost your one and that that you'll be in our thoughts as will be the one that you lost. And I just wish you every comfort as you as you navigate your way through the necessary grief that you've described. Yeah, Callahan, I just want to echo what Matt said. And thank you for leaving this voicemail because I am sure that it will make other people in their grief feel less alone. Now is the time in our podcast when we remember those in our community who have been loved and lost. Chuck, 82, father, grandfather, and breakfast enthusiast. Don Gratz, 72, dad, educator, reader, thinker, and supporter. Frank Lustria, 96, a grandfather and White Sox fan. Jefferson Mumford, 73, a father and veteran. Christina Michalak, 87, a proud Polish grandmother and little flower. And Chief Hospital Corpsman Bill McEnany, 101, Pearl Harbor survivor, husband, and renowned storyteller. Let light perpetual shine upon them. Vanessa, it's time for a blessings. Who are you blessing this week? I want to bless Mrs. Roberts, whose name we don't know. Sure. She's flipped upside down, and you can see her underwear. And the text tells us that her drawers are voluminous. And it just seems like a really strange moment to be like, fat shaming a woman while she's in the middle of being tortured. And I just want to bless her for like the indignity of this. Like she's not going to remember it. And I'm very glad for that. But I don't know. Indignity creates more indignity, right? It's something I've thought about. I've been in the hospital very little in my life, but you're already in the hospital. And then also you're tied to the bed in an IV and then all, which means you can't fix your hair, which means, right, like the indignities tend to pile up. And so I just want to bless Mrs. Roberts for everything that she has to go through here. What about you, Matt? Who would you like to bless? I'd like to bless Winky. You know, as we spoke about in our conversation, the the only one speaking up for Winky is Hermione. And even people who are sympathetic to Hermione's argument, like Mr. Weasley, he just kind of says, I agree with you, Hermione, but now's not the time, Right. Which, you know, raises the question, when is the time? <laughs> right. But also just because it just occurs to me, even with Hermione's defense, like in Winky's presence, everyone speaks about Winky in the third person. Like just the whole dynamic 
the whole structure of the way they interact it just serves to to reinforce house elves position as ancillary to or supplemental to the the wizarding world and that's a real problem and you know the, the elves will get their comeuppance at some point but for now i just feel i feel sorry and bad for winky especially with what we know in the future and and uh and want to offer a blessing to her and to house elves and other marginalized and subjugated peoples well matt next week we are going to be reading chapter 10 mayhem at the ministry through the theme of quitting i won't be here next week vanessa i have sorry i forgot to tell you that i'm quitting (laughs) not funny that's not not funny funny. i quit (laughs) just a few reminders before we give our thanks we have a live show in just a couple of weeks in denver colorado we hope that you meet us there you can get tickets to that at notsorryworks.com slash events and you can get this episode ad free if you subscribe via apple podcasts this has been a Not Sorry production, and Not Sorry Productions is a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We are edited and produced by AJ Yaramas. Our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll. And we are distributed by 8Cast. Special thanks this week to the University of California at Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center as part of its expanding awareness of the science of intellectual humility initiative, supported by the John Templeton Foundation. Special thanks this week also to Callahan for their voicemail, to Lara Glass, to Julia Argy, Gabby Iori, Margaret H. Willison, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Turkyle, Stephanie Paulsell, Hannah Rehack, and all of you who sent in the names of your loved ones this week. That you're, you're placing yourself and your priorities within the right framework. Well, thank you. Yes, I always do the right thing. (laughs) So humble.